Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 26 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on April 5th, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, Andrea Renee of What's Good Game joins us to discuss her roles as producer, on-camera talent, and businesswoman in the gaming industry. We offer reviews for both Bleeding Edge and Resident Evil 3. And lastly, we'll discuss the most recent news on the Xbox Series X. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And I hope you've been enjoying your time at home in social isolation while you distance yourself from those around you to keep COVID at bay. And while you're doing that, I hope you've been playing lots of different games. I myself have played quite a bit in the past week, Bleeding Edge and Resident Evil 3 among them, and you'll have reviews for those later on in this show. The spring sale is in its full swing over on the Xbox store, which led me to thinking, hey, I should pick up a couple games that might fill up a few hours of my time, uh, more so than the traditional. And so I picked up Dragon's Dogma Dark Arisen, the Xbox One version. Now I had put up quite a few hours in the Xbox 360 version, and I thought, what better way to fill a good amount of time than to snag a game I knew I liked, but replay it, enjoy some achievements, and get lost in a story there. I know a lot of you are doing that with The Witcher 3 and games like that available on Game Pass and otherwise. Uh, I know a lot of my friends are enjoying Animal Crossing right now, and that is awesome as well. The other game I picked up in the spring sale was The Crew 2. Now, I'm a big fan of arcade racers. Forza Horizon 3 and 4 seem to have ruined me in that I demand that level of perfection from almost any racer I play. Uh, in the arcade style, I might add. I'm not, much, I'm not one for simulation games. But uh, time is what it is, and I wanted to, to play a racing game, and I'd done so much of what there was to do in the Horizon series. So I figured I'd have a go with The Crew 2, and in my early hours, I'm enjoying it. So that's kind of cool. Later on in this episode, guys, I am super excited for you guys to hear an interview with Andrea Renee of What's Good Games. She's someone that I've long held in high regard for as a content creator, as a business person, and as someone who uh, works to be a producer in her field. Great role model there for a number of different reasons. Uh, I'll talk to her about all of those things, being on-camera on talent, to producing, to being a business person owning her own business in What's Good Games. That's going to be a super exciting interview for you guys, and uh, I gotta say, I'm really enjoying doing a number of the interviews for XEP and uh, I would argue something I've not really relayed to you guys much is the show is called the Xbox Expansion Pass in that I like to focus a lot on what it is uh, that the Xbox ecosystem has to offer, but I want to expand our viewpoints of the gaming industry as a whole, and the show, so the show serves that dual purpose. We've had a number of ID at Xbox developers on for games like Sparklight, Worse Than Death, uh, most recently we had Motion Twin on of Dead Cells, but also we talked to Stu Grubbs from Lightstream, we talked to Steven Spawn from Able Gamers, Rebecca Valentine of GamesIndustry.biz, and Andrea Renee adds her voice to those shedding light and expanding our knowledge of the gaming verse. And that tends to be what it is I try to do with this show in order to set it apart because I recognize that doing a solo show might be simple but also difficult for some to dive into. And that's what I try to offer for you guys. 
Let's move on now to a bit of that gaming news. In particular, this week, we were treated to an interview with Phil Spencer by way of IGN's podcast, Unlocked. Spencer joined Ryan McCaffrey over on Unlocked and answered a number of questions that McCaffrey threw his way about the Xbox brand, about the Xbox Series X, and Halo Infinite's launch coming up this holiday. And for his part, I thought Spencer did a fantastic job at being very candid and honest uh, with the audiences amidst so many unknowns. Now, throughout this entire interview, the vibe that I tended to get from Spencer oozed with confidence of what it was he thinks the Xbox brand is going to bring us throughout this year. There was confidence in a number of statements made by the pricing structure. We have seen in the reveal of the specs with the Xbox Series X that this is no slouch in terms of components, and that tends to mean expensive. What does expensive mean in a year where a number of people are losing their jobs? There are fears that this system could be as expensive as $600, and while Based on paper, it seems to me that the system may be worth that to a number of people, perhaps including myself, perhaps not. Spencer talked a lot about the pricing envelope and that they needed to be price agile moving forward. Sony has yet to announce the price of its PlayStation 5, which is, I think, thought of in the mindshare to be the primary competition still for the Xbox, regardless of what Google Stadia and now Amazon entering the game market might offer, what the Epic Game Store may offer. Whoever the primary competitor of the Xbox is, it seems to be that the mindshare remains it is PlayStation, and I can certainly understand and subscribe to that mentality for the current time being. With PlayStation 5's pricing structure not yet being announced, it makes sense that Microsoft would want to stay or have a bit of wiggle room. But the way that Spencer was speaking seemed to suggest that they are far more agile than we might otherwise think. In a box that could potentially be $600, he seemed to suggest it could be significantly cheaper than that. Uh, some people speculating as low as $400, which might be a stretch to me, but I simply don't know. We're in a year where a lot of people may not have the disposable income to buy into a new gaming economy, a new gaming set of hardware, and perhaps Microsoft is willing to, being a tr trillion dollar console, eat some, eat trillion dollar company rather, eat some of the cost on that console, and maybe not. They do certainly have a number of pillars that are going to be holding up their next gen efforts uh, by way of xCloud, by way of uh, non-hardware non negated or, or hardware gated, I suppose I should say. Uh, accessibility to their games. They're putting a number of their games onto Steam, onto their Windows Store. You have to wonder if Epic's not far behind for a number of them. In fact, this past week, we saw, I believe, Sea of Thieves just land into the Steam Store uh, to join all the Halo titles, to join State of Decay, and so many other first-party Xbox Game Studios franchises. So, there's a lot of ways for them to enter the next market, but hardware gating might still be a primary pillar uh, moving into 2020 and 2021's uh, gaming market. And I would argue it, it definitely is going to be. And the idea of a price envelope and a lot of flexibility in there seems to be encouraging for me. I think it would be a detriment to the system to launch more than $500, regardless of how much power is packed into it, because we have seen time and again that power does not sell a console. Spencer seemed to understand and recognize this and talked a number about a number of things, including the software lineup, including the day one software lineup. Now, we know a number of these titles are going to be released onto the Xbox Series X. We know of Halo Infinite, Cyberpunk 2077, Gods and Monsters, Lord of the Rings Gollum, Watchdog Legions, Hellblade 2, and Rainbow Six Quarantine. We also know that a number of these titles are going to exercise and utilize smart delivery, meaning whatever system you purchase it on within the Xbox family, if you buy it on your Xbox One, you will get the Xbox Series X version once you make use of that hardware. So you could dive into Halo Infinite on your 
one, if your hardware gated by price or if there are other reasons that you can't get to it, you could you could seemingly just, when you pick up a Series X, upgrade to it. And a lot of questions remain about how they're going to exercise that, but I like the idea and I like the, the, the methodology behind it. With so many games being delayed amidst the pandemic, you have to wonder, will Halo Infinite launch alongside the Series X? Will the Series X launch seemingly on time? While we don't have a release date, we are confident that it's 2020 as Microsoft continues to double down on that aspect. What I find so interesting about this is this this interview went live a day prior to the news that The Last of Us 2 was going to be delayed in indefinitely. And that is a major tri AAA title for the PlayStation brand that seems to bode poorly for the upcoming releases of a number of AAA games. It might be that Resident Evil 3 and Final Fantasy 7 are the last AAA games that maintained their release dates, even with Final Fantasy 7 adjusting its release dates a bit, uh, for the foreseeable future through summer until we get to, to fall, and we'll have to see the state of the gaming industry at that time. Last of Us 3 was delayed, of course Minecraft Dungeons, which is an Xbox first party title but will be launching onto other platforms. Minecraft Dungeons, a four player Diablo experience, kind of an action RPG if you will, is now going to be released in late May as opposed to late April. This This again bodes to what is likely to happen as studios switch to remote from home work. And what are we looking at for the day one launch lineup for the Xbox Series X? Uh, I will read uh, a couple comments and paraphrase a few comments that Spencer offered about that topic. He says, quote, For the momentum of the platform, it's not about any one day. It's, not about a sustain it's about a sustained stream of great games coming from our first party and third party partners, end quote. And what he's saying is he will not delay the box, not delay the system due to any one game. Should Halo Infinite be delayed, that will not necessarily delay the Xbox Series X, which is a bit surprising to me. I will argue that there is a great deal of value in having a showcase title that will demonstrate to your audience the quality of the box and the reason to upgrade. If Halo Infinite is chartably and notably imp more impressive on a Series X in a way that the mass mindshare can wrap its head around, then I would delay the box. I do think those need to launch in conjunction with one another. But I also recognize and appreciate the idea that having a ton of day one titles might actually serve as a detriment to the console. If you look most recently at the two biggest players in the console space for sales right now, the Nintendo Switch and the PlayStation 4, both launched with a rather small launch lineup, but a rather impressive launch window lineup. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Launching with a ton of games on day one is gonna be something that the Xbox Series X has to deal with simply by way of Game Pass and Ford compatibility, which is a pretty dope problem to have, but you need a demonstrable title that'll showcase your new stuff. So maybe you need to have a steady stream of games consistently throughout. And Spencer alluded to that as well. He said there's no likely scenario that we don't announce new games while at a conference because it's just not feasible. Otherwise, we'd have games that would be coming out without being announced first. I love it. I love that idea. They've got 15 studios that they theoretically are in the are keeping their eyes out for more acquisitions. And a lot of us jump to Moon Studios or MDHR, but it doesn't seem that those two things are going to happen. I feel like they would have happened by now. Uh, I still want to see it happening, particularly coming off of Ori's impressive uh, Will of the Wisps, but we'll see. We will see. But I love the idea that they're going to have a steady stream of games. The question will be, at what level quality will those games be? Will they oscillate between double and triple A? I think so. I think it makes perfect sense, given that they have two and three teams per studio on average throughout their Xbox Game Studios catalog. And that makes sense 
but they've got to be careful with their their representation of that. And when we get to my bleeding edge review later on in the episode, I think you'll understand why it is I'm saying that. And I think actually that might be a great time to transition into my bleeding edge review. Bleeding Edge is, of course, developed by Ninja Theory, members of Xbox Game Studios, and it seems fitting then that Bleeding Edge launched into Game Pass day and date and will likely be tried by a number of Xbox Game Pass members, be it on console or PC. Should also be noted that Bleeding Edge launched into xCloud. Android users specifically are able to, to utilize it on xCloud uh, just a few days after its initial release. And this is good news for a number of reasons. It should be noted that Bleeding Edge is a confusing game to be sure. Initially, it presents itself as a melee-focused, close-combat hero shooter, and past that, there is a depth and strategy that's at odds with its seemingly roguish attitude. And it's that rogue attitude that all but guarantees that few will see past its obtuse presentation. A ridiculous cast of highly customizable characters is accompanied by two objective-based modes that offer little in the way of gameplay variety, and certainly do pay homage to more established team play shooters like Overwatch. I think Overwatch is a comparison you're going to hear a number of times in a number of conversations surrounding something as stylish as Bleeding Edge. But no matter how stylish the characters or simplistic the objectives for them are, an obnoxious camera and a poorly explained gameplay set of mechanics are going to keep the majority of players from giving this game more than a few rounds of attention, if at all. In fact, I think a number of people will skip it on its presentation alone. Ninja Theory has certainly made a name for itself in the realm of combat mechanics, and that remains to be true in a number of the characters that it puts on display here in Bleeding Edge. Combining multiple types of close quarter combat attacks with dodge and parry mechanics and mobility mechanics that are a joy to use once mastered, it remains inconsistently accessible as your success depends almost entirely on having a balanced team. Without a healer in the group, you will most assuredly fail. And getting a healer and getting the right kind of healer can be very difficult because communication is absolutely mandatory in this game and few people make use of the in-game chat mechanics along with being a part of, of party systems that will allow you to voice communicate with your team. There is a tank, DPS, and healer role in all of them. They bring a tremendous amount of depth to their unique characters, which make it all the more frustrating that the game does a very poor job of explaining how to balance your team and how to use each of these characters properly. The roles are clearly explained in a tutorial that is slow going to say the least, but if you just jump in, you will be lost. But I understand tank, DPS, and healer roles. The characters are so customizable and obtuse in their explanation that it can be very difficult to utilize the best they have to offer. All the more intriguing about this is that if you do take the time to learn it, there's a mod system that allows you to customize some min-maxing of characters that can really do a great deal of damage if you understand the systems. I just sincerely doubt that anyone's going to take the time to do so. The camera is the most frustrating aspect of Bleeding Edge. For all the incredibly cool moments that Bleeding Edge does provide, many of them are ruined by an obnoxious camera that poorly follows your locked-on character and clips it out with walls and weapon effects that block your view of the action. It can be very easy to lose yourself in that action, and you'll find the incredibly deep combat mechanics fall completely by the wayside when you see that you have no idea what's going on, and that will devolve you into button mashing. In the edge, bleeding edge comes off at in the edge. In the end, bleeding edge comes off as nothing more than a reasonable execution of a game that has great ideas, and it's unlikely that many will get past a lot of those frustrations. It's a good, not great type of descriptor, and it seems on par for the course uh, with bleeding edge in all of its aspects. A lot of good, 
never a sense of great, and it's likely that for now, you can skip it and wait till more refinement arrives. Of course, Bleeding Edge, not the only major title to launch this past week. Resident Evil 3 made its debut and launched to a seemingly divided bit of mindshare on whether or not the game was worth its $60 price tag. I jumped into the title, put my way through from the beginning to the end, and while the game is officially designated a remake, designated a remake I in some ways think of this as more of a reimagining as it takes quite a few liberties with the content that was originally included in Resident Evil 3 so many years ago. My time with the game was absolutely rewarding, and I enjoyed myself far more than the admittedly meatier Resident Evil 2 campaigns. Resident Evil 3 is more combat-focused and has fewer of the ridiculous puzzles that I believe are now standard Resident Evil affair. And that, of course, will be music to the ears of some and frustrating to the, the ears of others. And that will be the dividing point on what it is you enjoy about a Resident Evil title. Resident Evil 2 was a bit more foreboding and slower. It allowed for more puzzle mechanics and was more of a survival horror game, whereas Resident Evil 3 tends to embrace a bit more of the action side of things. The two games do look very, very similar and have a number of reused assets. The graphics are as beautiful as in Resident Evil 2. The sound design is equally on par. Given that the story takes place alongside Resident Evil 2, we see a lot of the same settings, including the infamous police station, which you spend a far less time in in Resident Evil 3 than you did in 2. But beyond that, players get to explore more of Raccoon City, and I think what they'll find will be a bit underwhelming. There are only a few optional buildings to explore, and there's very little in the way of branching paths. Indeed, this game has a very particular path that it wants you to follow, and it tolerates very little deviation from that. Moreover, much of the traversal in the game is shepherded by the game's primary antagonist, the Nemesis. It's a foreboding evolution of Mr. X, and it's a nearly unstoppable juggernaut that haunts you throughout your gameplay as Jill Valentine or Carlos Oliveira. He smashes through walls, he jumps into your path, he explodes onto the scene, and he's a pretty standard hulking mass of death, and I really enjoyed fighting him. Fighting Nemesis was a highlight for me, as it makes sense that he can deal with any number of assaults that I provide for my piddly and modest weapons throughout the game as either character. It's the traditional zombies, though, that gave me far more frustration. A single standard zombie can withstand north of six shots to the head and seemingly continue to move unimpeded. And this is similar to my gripe and frustration that I found in Resident Evil 2. It breaks a lot of the mold that you shoot a zombie in the head and it not go down. There's very little in the way of a satisfying headshot. And it seems to offer no value for what a headshot means, and it runs counter to standard video game affairs. And that'd be fine if it's standard Resident Evil, except that seemingly randomly, at times, headshots will explode a zombie's head. And that inconsistency is what I find so frustrating. I do not know if I should be aiming for the legs, for the head, for the body, or if it matters at all. That inconsistency continues uh, with the press A to counter mechanic that has absolutely no effect in my time with the game. I spent over 8 hours playing Resident Evil 3 in my first playthrough and I plan to play through again, but not once in those 8 hours was I attacked by a zombie and given the prompt to press A to shove them off and found it to work. Never once did it work and it leads me to beg the question, was I doing it wrong? Or why is this mechanic included at all? And that I have no answers to either of those two questions uh, compounds, I think, my frustration with it. The campaign is notably shorter than its prequel, and that'll leave some people questioning that value. And I think that's a fair complaint for a $60 game. I truly recommend you waiting for a sale if you are on the fence about Resident Evil 3. 
Resident Evil Resistance is included in this purchase, and that is technically a separate game mode that I have not yet tried at the time of this review. In the end, I look back on Resident Evil 3's campaign with fondness. I like it, and I am keen to play through it again. Uh, I like the game a lot, and I like it more so than Resident Evil 2, even if it lacks a number of the refinements. In fact, I would argue Resident Evil 2 displays a level of polish uh, beyond that of Resident Evil 3, and it you, makes you wonder why this game needed to come out now. Who was asking for it to come out this so this soon after Resident Evil 2 if there could have been more content included or if a bit more polish could have been uh, made and shown to light with Resident Evil 3. I'm not sure we needed the Resident Evil 3 remake right now. And this is separate from any pandemic issues. This is just as far as original timelines for when the game would come out. The question will beg itself, do you enjoy the more slow, the tenser, the puzzle-ridden campaigns of Resident Evil? If so, you should stick with Resident Evil 2. Do you enjoy the combat and action of Resident Evil? If so, then Resident Evil 3 is for you. That's it for me on Resident Evil. I hope you guys do check out the game. It is worth waiting for a sale if you're on the fence. Otherwise, dive right in, let me know what you think, and we'll talk soon. Now, several of you were kind enough to write into the show with questions, thoughts, or comments, and I did select a few of them to include in the show, and I asked uh, a number of the listeners what it was they'd be picking up in the spring sale, and if you've not let me know yet what you're picking up in the spring sale, do that for me. Tweet at me, at insipidghost, or email me, insipidghost at gmail.com, and let me know what you think is worth my time, particularly when I've got time to spare, so there's no doubt about that. Edward Varnell wrote in, he said, I didn't pick anything up in the spring sale due to me owning 75% of the must-haves, but my question for you is this, will Microsoft First Party truly deliver Series X and will they space them out easily? Working on Control before I jump into Ori 2 and I hope to knock out Dead Space. Well, first of all, super glad to hear you don't need to pick up anything in the spring sale. Your wallet probably thanks you for that. I'm stoked to hear that you are checking out Ori 2. Dead Space is a peach, and I need to play Dead Space 2 and 3. I need to do that. And Control, I absolutely loved. I'm curious, Edward, what system are you playing Control on? Are you playing on an Xbox system? If so, is it the S or the X? Uh, mainly, I ask that because... So many people to me have reported issues with the, the, the optimization on the S, whereas I played on an X and found very little in the way of frustration, particularly as patches made their way out. But I do, I am curious nonetheless. Now, as for your question for Microsoft first-party games truly being able to deliver, deliver on the Series X and will they space them out appropriately? I think Phil Spencer addressed that earlier in his interview with Ryan McCaffrey and the idea that they will have games coming at a consistent pace. For me, though, it's a matter of quality. Are we going to get bleeding edge quality games where uh, it's debatable that you even need to try it out? I mean, there's something to be, there's a lot of fun to be had in bleeding edge, but is it is it necessary for you to play it like it is with with some other major AAA titles? No, no, it's not. So I don't I don't think you'll have a problem with the cadence of games. It looks to me like they'll have at least one exclusive for their brand, whether that includes PC or not, for the Xbox brand. It should have one exclusive per quarter of a year at a pretty consistent cadence, and, and more so even in that. Will you get more Everwilds, or will you get uh, the next Fable, the next Halo Infinite? Uh, I'm not sure, but it looks to me that with 15 studios, they've got a pretty solid cadence ready to go in terms of first-party titles. So I think they are ready for that, Edward, and, and we'll see. Only time will tell. Scott Ward writes in as well. Scott, I hope you're doing well and your family is safe and sound as you uh, make your way through this time. Scott says, I've never played Overwatch. It's not my kind of game, but I did play Bleeding Edge and I enjoyed it. I hear everyone comparing it to Overwatch, so maybe I would like that too. 
Uh, I don't know, Scott. That's a good question. I think Overwatch is likely to have more quality for you and a bigger player base for a number of reasons. Even though Bleeding Edge launches into Game Pass, is available on PC, and now available for Android users on xCloud, I don't know that people are going to take the time to buy in. It has a lot of deep mechanics that are impressive uh, and worthy of a number of hero shooters, but that frustration with the camera leads me to think that Bleeding Edge, if it doesn't quickly address some of those concerns... Uh, I, I think that's a niche group that's going to die out. I do think those that are into it, I know our friend Lord Addict is into that game. If Bleeding Edge finds its niche, finds its audience the way that, say, Sea of Thieves did, and then they're able to grow the game and maybe have an anniversary update similar to a number of the Xbox titles, because Microsoft certainly sticks with their titles. There is no doubt that they do not seem to abandon their group. If, if so, State of Decay 2 wouldn't have gotten its remastered upgrade with the Juggernaut, and Sea of Thieves wouldn't have gotten the anniversary update, Halo, Master Chief Collection, etc. So here's, to, here's hoping that a year from now, Bleeding Edge is a game for you, uh, and a game for everybody, rather, I should say, Scott, so that you have more people to play with. We'll see, man. A lot of questions to be had there. The last comment that I pulled came from Bill Coniglio, and he was discussing Resident Evil 3, and he said, I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Uh, I love it, but feel they removed too much without adding in more to fill up that loss. No real reason to replay besides gimmick unlocks. Also, as I said before, the aiming. If you let us aim for the head, make it mean something. Still great. Bill lands a number of points. I think I covered some of those in my review, and Bill and I had had interactions earlier on Twitter prior to this statement about those headshots. We do want them to mean something, and at the moment, it doesn't feel like it does. And I don't think that's going to get patched or upgraded the way we've talked about with other games. I don't see that as changing. It seems to me to just be a standard Resident Evil trope. Uh, and Capcom, for their part, seems to be doing a good job when it comes to their content in the past few years. Resident Evil 7, Monster Hunter World, Monster Hunter World's expansions, Resident Evil 2. Resident Evil 3 seems to me to be the first dip in quality. Which is interesting for me to say, as I liked Resident Evil 3 more than 2, but that was by way of a gameplay choice. I liked the combat of it more, as opposed to the survival horror aspect. So there's something to be looked at there. And I wonder what Capcom is going to do as they lead us into next gen. A lot of their Mega Man uh, platforms are, are well on display and on sale regularly, and they seem to continue to do well. There's a lot of questions there. Nonetheless, guys, that is it for my portion of XEP this week, and we're going to close out by thanking Andrea Renee of What's Good Games for coming on to the show, donating her time, uh, and sharing her insight on a number of different topics. It was a pleasure to have a discussion with her, particularly amidst these dark times. It was a bright spot for me, and I hope it's a bright spot for you. I hope you're able to enjoy her interview, take something out of it, and expand your knowledge of the gaming verse as a whole. If you enjoyed her talk, I would encourage you also to go back to previous episodes and hear what what it was that Stu Grubbs of Lightstream Engineering had to offer about streaming technology. Hear what Steven Spawn said of able gamers and being accessible. Hear what it was that the developers of Sparklight, of Worse Than Death, had to say. I want to continue to expand our knowledge about different aspects of the industry. And if you have different aspects of the industry you want to hear from me, uh, or rather hear me look into, let me know on the Twitterverse at InsipidGhost. And of course, you can always email me, insipidghost at gmail.com. Have a wonderful rest of your week, guys. Keep playing and enjoying yourselves. Take care. All right, today we are very fortunate to be joined by one of the co-founders of What's Good Games, industry host, on-camera talent, and producer. Some call her the busiest lady in the business, Andrea Renee. She has made time for us for today. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. 
I am ecstatic to have you. It is a pure pleasure to have you here. We've got you here to discuss a great many things from your time in the industry, uh, working for Spike TV, from Electric Playground, you did esports coverage for Yahoo, GameStop TV, some people may know you from there. What motivated you to join the games industry as an on-camera talent? It's an interesting question because when I started doing on-camera work, it wasn't initially for video games. I went to school for broadcast journalism and originally had intentions of joining the entertainment news field here in Los Angeles. And when I originally moved out to California, that is what I started doing on camera. I started doing red carpet coverage, movie junkets. I even did a brief stint with E! Online. And what I discovered was that it was a little bit more competitive than I think I was prepared for. And I'm a pretty competitive person, but it was a different kind of vibe, a different company culture, so to speak, than I think I was anticipating. And around that time when I was having a little bit of an existential crisis of like, is this really what I want to do? The Great Recession hit here in the United States, and there was also a really big writer strike here in Hollywood that impacted a lot of the entertainment jobs. So mm -hmm. a lot of people were out of work, and so I really had to reassess what I was doing, and that's when I was working with a hosting instructor who gave me advice that I should pick a specialty. They mm -hmm. kind of saw the writing on the wall that a lot of cable networks would be hiring specialty hosts, whether you're a fashion designer or a chef or a decorator, right? If you look at some of the big cable channels and how they have really found their niche, she was like, what's your niche? And I was like, I don't know. I have to think about that because it's not like you can go, well, you know, I really love movies. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, everybody loves movies. Mm -hmm. You can't exactly call it your niche unless you have some kind of an angle. So I really did some soul searching and that's when I was like, well, what about video games? Here's me playing video games almost every day. I started playing games when I was a kid. And at the time, there was really only G4 as far as like broadcast video game coverage. And of course, there was GTTV on Spike as well. And so I was like, I don't know. I never thought about that as a career path. But I was like, well, you know what? I've got nothing to lose. No one's hiring anybody right now. So I just started searching for auditions for video game hosting positions. And I found my first opportunity to host for E3 2008 for a little site called thebitbag.com. And that's mm -hmm. where it all began. And how do you pitch that to them and then from there take take that experience and then pitch to uh, perhaps a, a more uh, lucrative opportunity or a higher exposure opportunity it's just really one foot in front of the other pounding the pavement practicing you know it's anything anybody who's in a creative field does to be successful it's just you have to keep taking as many opportunities as you can get to not only keep honing your craft to keep practicing, but to keep meeting as many people as possible. Because generally in entertainment, particularly in on-camera opportunities, you really need to know as many people as possible because you typically get hired by producers or casting directors, et cetera, if you've already worked with them before. But then, of course, the big question is, well, how do you work with them in the first place? Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes it's just a little bit of luck, but usually it's a lot of a lot of putting yourself out there. And that means you're going to hear no quite a bit. And I think for me, getting to where I am today was really just me aggressively seeking out opportunities, but then also making opportunities for myself. You know, you have to put yourself out there if you want to have the opportunities become available. And when you put yourself on the line like that, how do you keep a stable mindset? Because that has to be 
you must feel very exposed at certain points or vulnerable is perhaps a better word uh, when you do hear that rejection or you hear no and then you continue to put one forth, one foot in front of the other. It's difficult. It's tough for me to give like a soundbite kind of answer to that question because mm -hmm. it really just comes down to, you know, your mental fortitude and what you're willing to sacrifice. And for me, you know, I moved to Los Angeles because I had a dream of working in television and I still have that dream and I was going to do whatever it took in order to make that a reality. And I think what's hard about Hollywood is that some people come here with stars in their eyes thinking that, you know, they're going to be famous quickly. And that's just not the case. You know, it's one of those things that I tell people whenever they ask me, you know, how do I do what you do? Or how did you get to where you are? And I'm like, you got to have a lot of determination. You have to wake up every morning ready to work and ready to do what it takes and be passionate. And if you're not, and if you're like, you know, I can't be bothered. Well, that seems like a lot of work. Well, I don't really want to do that. Like any inkling of those attitudes. And I tell people, you know, maybe this just isn't for you. Make it a hobby and, you know, keep it as that. But if you want to make this a business and you want to make a full-time living, I mean, you got to be ready to work harder than everybody else. Absolutely. And I suppose that's how you, you earned that nickname. Now you, have a, a fairly complete resume from, from where I sit uh, on this side of the screen. What talk to me timeframes. When did you enter into your early game coverage outlets and how have they changed through the years? So aside from doing like random one-off opportunities, my first full-time job in digital producing was in 2010. So I started in the industry in 2008, but didn't go full-time till 2010. And I was working as a producer for a website called thisweekend.com. I was hosting and producing a show called This Weekend Video Games, among several other shows that I was producing. But that was really my first video game job. And at the same time, the same owner who was running thisweekend.com had a site called Mahalo. And Mahalo Video Games on YouTube was one of the first big walkthrough channels before video walkthroughs really kind of exploded in the next couple of years, with like 2012, 2013 really kind of being where it took off to like the next level where streaming and capturing at home became more accessible. But I was hosting and writing Mahalo Video Games today multiple times a week in addition to hosting and producing This Week in Video Games. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth and where I learned what it meant to be part of like video games press. I started going mm -hmm. to more conventions outside of just E3. I went to my first game developers conference, went to uh, IndieCade, went to PAX, and it kind of just snowballed from there. And from 2010 all the way up through now, I would imagine the attention by fans and consumers has increased tenfold, not just by way of uh, social media accessibility, but simple fact that there are far more gamers now than there ever have been. That's definitely true. I think that is an interesting concept of gamers because there's a lot of people out there who play video games of different sorts that don't classify themselves as gamers. And I think there's always been a lot more people who enjoy the medium of video games than openly talk about it. But I'm glad that we're in an era now where inclusivity and this idea of expanding communities is becoming much more prevalent in gaming specifically. Because I know when I first started playing games as a as a young girl, you know, I didn't talk to anybody about it. You know, it was like me and my sister, we would play with my dad and I didn't have any other friends that played games. And it's not that they didn't play them, they just didn't play them with me specifically. And so it wasn't really until post-college that I started gaming with other people 
instead of making it a solo thing. And I think I'm not alone there. So I love this idea that gaming is more popular than ever because I think it means that it's more inclusive than ever. In addition, of course, to the fact that there are more ways to play games than ever before. That is, that is very true. And uh, I have to, to wonder, does that change your business approach, that pitch to host things? Does that does the the way that so many gamers are able to enter, does that change your role at all? Um, I'm not sure what you what you mean by that question. Well, given that you are so easily accessible on YouTube, people can find you uh, via social media from a number of different outlets. They can find you at What's Good Games, which I know we'll talk about in a moment, and hosting panels. There's a lot of hats that you have to wear simultaneously. Uh, is it difficult to jump between the, those various roles from, from businesswoman to producer to digital content creator, host, et cetera? It's definitely not difficult for me to jump through those or jump between those roles. I think what's interesting is that it seems difficult for people outside the industry or in different sections of the production industry specifically, not game making, mm -hmm. to accept that because it's it's been very untraditional in production for people to wear multiple hats. You know, since digital has been on the rise for the last five to ten years, we're seeing more and more people having to wear multiple hats, whether you're the air quotes predator, the producer editor, or whether you're a producer writer, producer host, writer host, or you know all of the above, I think that this idea of wearing multiple hats is becoming more acceptable. But in traditional Hollywood roles, whether it's in television or film, what have you, all, a lot of those roles are very segmented. And it made it difficult for me over the last 10 years to find a stable role because it felt like I was always asked to do things that weren't things that I was really passionate about. And so I discovered, you know, hey, if I want to be an executive producer that oversees creative strategy, content management, creative development, while also producing and running production day to day along with post-production and also holding the microphone, then I guess I'm just going to have to do it myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And in 2017, you and several others, you took a, a bold step to create What's Good Games. You, Brittany Brombacher and Christine Steimer, uh, went out there, created What's Good, where you essentially took on those roles. And you said you are going to do it yourself. Can you talk to me about the decision uh, to, to take that step and then kind of the underlying challenges that maybe you didn't foresee when doing that? It was a whole bunch of stress getting ready to launch What's Good Games. I mean, the original idea was born out of the desire for me to have a regular place to have a show. You know, since moving to the Bay, when I moved back in the fall of 2014 and went, you know, to a full-time contract position with Defy Media and Game Trailers, you know, I saw the writing on the wall that Defy Media was probably going to sunset their gaming brands, you know, in the not-too-distant future, which, you know, sadly they, they did. But... I took that as the opportunity to say, hey, I got to start looking around for the next thing. And I, you know, interviewed with some companies up in the San Francisco area. And I kind of discovered that it felt like there wasn't quite the role that I was looking for. And so the only way to really get that was for me to create it myself. And thankfully, I had three wonderful women who were along for the ride and believed in the vision that I had and have, you know, helped me create What's Good Games into what it is today. It's very fun for me to watch that show because I feel like it by itself wears a number of hats. And we see uh, Brittany and Christine 
take on their own personalities and you as well uh, running running with them. Did you face any ex- extended adversity or roadblocks as you began as an all-female cast? I mean, that was that a difficult thing or is that something that I'm making up in my mind? <laughs> uh, it's not something you're making up. It's definitely something that we deal with on an ongoing basis, but we didn't experience any major roadblocks that we weren't already used to having to deal with or having to cope with. Like there wasn't somebody that came in and said, Hey, you can't do this because you're for women. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we were very adamant that we were not promoting and pitching what's good games as a girl gamer podcast. Mm -hmm. Not that there is anything wrong with women who want to identify that way. I think that that's great. And they are, you know, allowed to brand their shows however they want. But for me, having experienced harassment about being a woman in games throughout my entire career, I just wanted to avoid that altogether. And the easiest Mm -hmm. way for us to do that was to say, hey, What's Good Games is a video game show run by four video game industry professionals who have a combined over 35 years of experience in different fields inside the video game industry. And so if you're gonna come and listen to a video game show talking about news and analysis of the biggest games that are happening in our industry, why don't you come listen to our show because we have so many years of experience between our crew. Yeah, you have 30 plus years experience across multiple types of, or multiple aspects of the gaming industry, is that correct? Yeah, so I mean, Obviously, Alexa Ray Korea is no longer with What's Good Games that she hasn't been for quite some time, but she was, you know, there at the beginning. I mean, but with Brittany, Christine, and I, you know, we kind of hit a bunch of different faucets. You know, Brittany having started BlondeNerd.com from scratch and really coming up from the IGN blogs and creating her presence online completely on her own and building that up just with her community and by really doing something I think that a lot of fans of video games dream about doing that she actually accomplished and and did so in spades from a social media community marketing perspective and then you know Christine Steimer worked with a lot of major publishers she also worked with IGN but coming from places like PlayStation and EA and CD Projekt Red and I think that's something people tend to forget about Steimer is that, you know, she has a lot of experience working with developers and she of course works with Riot Games right now. And then, you know, myself coming from the more media focused side, having worked with a lot of MCNs and digital entertainment companies and things like that, kind of seeing that more traditional media side of the video games business. And so I think we have like a really nice, like well-rounded set of ideologies. I, I tend to agree. Each one of you brings something special and it allows a, ca- a cadence in the conversations and hearing Steimer to Brittany, to Andrea Renee, to Alexa Ray Korea when she was there. It, there's personalities that ebb and flow, which make a conversation wonderful. Now, I look at whatsgoodgames.com. I look at your content and I see professional grade photography, professional grade websites uh, accompanying those personalities that are captured there. What is it that people don't think about that is necessary when creating something like what's good? Oh, wow. That's such a monster question because I think that a lot of people who don't have any production experience or who have never worked for a media company think that all of this stuff just kind of happens. And it's so not true. I mean, branding and creating a brand and maintaining a brand is so much work. 
And that's something that, you know, we knew going in because I had been part of the launch of several brands over the course of my career as a producer. And, you know, Brittany, having launched her own site and built it from scratch herself, knew exactly what she was getting into when she and I decided to kind of take on the leadership roles in maintaining and creating the brand. And for us, it was really important that we have to strike a balance between wanting all of our materials around the brand to look as professional as possible, but also not overextending ourselves from a cost perspective because everything costs money, right? You know, you mm -hmm. get graphics made that costs money. You build a website that costs money. You know, you have to file for a trademark that costs money. And so I think that, you know, when people are like, oh, I want to start a Twitch channel or I want to be a YouTuber or I want to work for a video game media company, or they want to start their own video game outlet. They don't, necessarily understand all of those hidden costs if they've never worked for a major network before. Mm -hmm. Did you have to turn to guidance from anyone around the industry for different things like merch or Patreon or, or working with press contacts? I know you guys enter with so much experience. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Oh yeah, of course. Every turn. I'm calling people all the time. Even this week I was messaging my good friend, Joey Noel over at Kind of Funny about yeah. something that I had a question about. You know, and that's what's great about our industry, especially from a digital creator standpoint, is that I know so many other creators from having worked on YouTube for over a decade now. This idea that we're all one big community and we all help each other and share resources because even though from the outside it may look like we're competing against each other, it's really not that at all because we're all individual personalities, all unique. It's not like you know, we're GameSpot and IGN trying to see who can post the trailer first to get the most amount of clicks. It's like, that's not the business that we're in. You know, the things that we do and the content that we create is very custom and is very much tailored to our personalities. And what that means for our, for our fans is that we can be friends and collaborate with other people knowing that, you know, the people who watch us watch us because they like what we do. And they're not just finding the first website that has like the factual, like, objective-based story that they're looking to get information from. They want our perspective on it, and that's that's really cool. That has to be a bit freeing, knowing that you can just be free to express whatever it is you're doing. And you, you touched on my next question, which has to do with other content creators. Uh, do you notice a, a you, you mentioned the benefits, but are there drawbacks to working closely with those who make similar content? I mean, I guess you could come up with some drawbacks, but the drawbacks are far outweighed by the benefits. So mm -hmm. I don't even know if it's, I don't even know if they're worth highlighting. I mean, there's, I guess, you know, you could say, well, maybe you're cannibalizing some of your audience. And that was a concern for me when I was working a lot with Kind of Funny, this idea mm -hmm. that I would potentially be talking about some of the same items that I would be talking about on What's Good Games or you know, talking about the same game on the games cast that I would talk about on what's good. And, you know, I did think about that, but I mean, it was such a small amount of people who wouldn't go listen to both because of that. So, I mean, there really aren't drawbacks to working with other creators. There's really only upside. Well, that's a great point. If you do have to talk about the same topic multiple times, uh, and I'm gathering from what you're saying that it it did not cannibalize that audience, and you found it to be more of a more of a benefit than a drawback in general. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. Me having a conversation with Greg Miller about Resident Evil Three is not the same as me having a conversation with Brittany Brombacher about Resident Evil Three. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely true. Brittany has been uh, very excited this past week as we've gone <laughs> through, and I saw you squeal just a few times uh, <laughs> on on a Twitch stream or two. So that had to be fun. Uh, well, tell me this then: 
How does Andrea Renee now separate herself from Wesco Games when it's time for you to go uh, apply for the next hosting gig? You've hosted a number of panels at multiple E3s and uh, E3 Coliseum. How do you separate yourself from Wesco Games, or are they synonymous and you don't need to any longer? That's an interesting question. I don't know if I have a definitive answer for it. I've always run my own personal production company and that has always managed my business doing hosting work because of the way that what's good games is structured. You know, we kind of keep it very separate from the things that I do, just like Brittany keeps it separate from what she does for blonde nerd. And, you know, Steimer keeps it separate from what she does for riot. You know, it's kind of like its own thing. I mean, sometimes we'll do public appearances as what's good games. And then, I'll do my own appearances as just Andrea Renee. And it seems to work for us. We don't really have any any problems with it. I think it's just people understand that, you know, if you're working with me, you're working with what's good. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful statement. That's a, and, and tell me this, what are you looking to do going forward? What's good seems to be on a wonderful role. You just launched a Monday show uh, that, to go along with the, the, the standard podcast. Um, What's next for you guys? Do you want more? Is there is is what you have enough? How, what's your what are your ambitions? You know, we think about that quite a bit, and it's also a question we get from our fans a lot as well. And for us right now, you know, launching the Monday show on Twitch has been a big undertaking, and committing to doing a live streaming show is something our fans have wanted for a really long time. And we, you know, just kind of were dragging our feet on it because we had some other irons in the fire that didn't end up working out, and now, you know, that we're all grounded and not really traveling, which, you know, dramatically affects a streaming schedule as any full-time streamer will tell you, you know, you have to be consistent. And we travel a lot to go to fan conventions, to go to preview events and other things like that. And so we were really hesitant to start a recurring streaming show because it's just a couple of us, you know, it's not like we have a staff of like 10 to 15 people that could rotate in and fill in if like Britney's on the road for an event or I'm on the road for an event or we both are. It's like, if we're gone, like the show doesn't happen. You know, and one of the things that we've always committed to is always making sure the Friday show is every single Friday, no matter what. And we told ourselves if we're going to expand what what's good games is and the amount of content that we're offering, that we want to be sure that we're ready to take that, take that on. I think sometimes content creators bite off a little bit more than they can chew in the beginning and they get burnout really quickly and it's easier when you're just starting out, whether you're, it's a brand new channel or whether you're starting a new show to just take it slow, do one thing and try to do that one thing really well. And then once you feel comfortable, um, add more. But if you start off going, I'm going to do this and this and this, and then we're going to talk about this, then it gets really difficult to maintain, especially when you're trying to put out something that's high quality. Do you feel pressure from that when you, when you operate via something like Patreon? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, we want to always make sure that we're fulfilling our obligations. And sometimes it's really difficult to fulfill all of our obligations on an ongoing basis, which is why, you know, we've restructured our Patreon a couple of times since we've launched. Mm-hmm. That's uh, I I love hearing the restructuring idea because I do see a number of very highly, highly talented content creators do that. And it serves their audiences quite well, and it demonstrates the same thing we want to see throughout the gaming industry, and that's people being receptive while still making what they want to make. And I think that 
uh, serves us well. And to close out the, the, the interview, Andrew, you mentioned being grounded. How are you feeling your time right now? Are you, are you doing okay? Do you have advice for people uh, who may be struggling through? Yeah, it's it's wild times right now, and it's really easy to let everything on the news and social media take a hold of your psyche. And so you really just have to make a concerted effort to break away from always looking at the news around the pandemic. Obviously, it's important to be educated about what you should and should not be doing, but it's also important to take care of yourself. And so for me, it was a really big struggle in the beginning, uh, like three weeks ago when we first started getting the news of all the cancellations, you know, like I was in a pretty, pretty down place because a lot of my personal business is tied to these events, like a lot of people in the video games industry. And so I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay for the studio that I just financed? And, you know, when is my next paycheck going to be coming in? And a lot of people are having those conversations right now, right? Like, what are we going to do? And I think the thing that's really helped me stay focused is I need to work on the things that I have control over and stop being upset at the things that are beyond my control and just do what I can to make content that uplifts people. And there was a brief moment where I lost sight of that. And um, I'm glad that I'm over that hump now. And I decided, you know what? I can't worry about, you know, how much the studio costs, but I've got it now. So let's start making stuff. So I've been streaming a lot more. I'm working on a concept uh, that's a non-gaming related show with a friend of mine named Anthony Carboni. He's showed up on a couple yeah. of streams lately because we've been we've been um, letting our creative juices stew. And we're coming up with a new show that we're working on. So we're excited about that, you know, and then looking at what we can do more for What's Good Games. And then finally, I've been talking about doing my what's good wine project for years at this point. And so I shot my very first video and started the Instagram channel for that. And hopefully going to be kicking that stuff off because you know what, if we're all stuck inside, might as well make some content. Absolutely. Well, Andrea, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time this afternoon uh, to speak with me and to share your insights. So it's so much knowledge to take advantage of there. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. You were a very excellent interviewer. Well, I appreciate that. Tell us, please, where we can go to support Andrea Renee and What's Good Games. The easiest way to keep up with me and everything I'm doing is to follow me on Twitter. It's just at Andrea Renee. If you guys want to join us for our new live show for What's Good Games on Twitch, that's just twitch.tv slash what's good games. And of course, you can download the podcast on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We're pretty much on all of the platforms now, including the big three, Spotify, Google Play, and Apple. And then, of course, you know, youtube.com slash what's good games.